Morning. As we uh, as we get started today, I uh, just want to remind you there are some outlines and notes pages in the back. If you would like to uh, to use any of those, they are there for you. Um, and I also again put the questions uh, that you guys can use during the life group if you need them uh, in those outlines. So those are available in the back if you'd like one. Uh, I, and I also feel like maybe I should point out that um, there was a celebration yesterday for uh, Janet Austin graduating from college, which is incredible. But none of those people are here today. <laughs> just saying. I'm, I'm, you Just whatever. <laughs> and also, so you know, if you miss church, we're going to make fun of you while you're not here. Not really. Um, but uh, we love those guys, and I'm super excited for Janet. Uh, that's a, I didn't even know she was still in school. So what did she graduate with? What's her degree in? Her daughters don't know. Business management. Awesome, awesome. Maybe that'll help her wrangle Craig. We'll see. All right, so last week we, were, we dug into uh, the Mosaic Covenant uh, that God is establishing with Israel. And we, we looked at these chapters and, and kind of talked about how um, we're going to take some, some real broad strokes with these. Um, the, we, we looked at the Ten Commandments, and then these next three or four chapters are Moses explaining what those commandments look like in everyday life. And so for us and our purposes in, in understanding what God is calling us to, to, to do to join him to set people free, we're going to just kind of sweep across those, get the intent behind them, um, and look at the application that that has for our lives um, today we're going to continue on from where we left off in uh, chapter 21. We, we stopped with verse 11, so today we're going to pick up with verse 12, and we're going to move all the way to the end of chapter 23, if you can believe that. Okay. Last week we covered two major sections, uh, and I did take a little bit of time to break these down more than I'm going to do today because of um, the subject matter that they, that they uh, are. Okay. So the first one we talked about was laws about altars, and we we looked at how God is defining for Israel the way in which their relationship is going to work. God had called them into the wilderness to worship him. And so he's saying, you're here to worship me um, because of the things that I've done for you. Remember we talked about that vassal treaty and how it gave God the right to, to uh, ask them of things. And God's desire in that is to reveal himself. He wanted Israel to come into the, into the wilderness and to worship him because through that process, God's able to reveal who he is to them. He freed them from Egypt for that purpose and to fulfill the covenant that he made with Abraham, which we're going to talk about a little bit more today. The other thing that we talked about was the laws in that section about how uh, Israel was to deal with slaves. Um, and we broke down the purpose uh, in those chapters. Let's, let's break that down for just a minute. Um, I felt like I said a while ago I needed to dig into this, but what we learned out of this passage is that God's desire was to free Israel from slavery. Not to let that continue. But Israel, when they were freed from Egypt, even though they as a nation were freed from slavery, they chose to keep their brothers and sisters that were their slaves in slavery. And so God said, okay, fine, if you want to live that way, I'm going to provide a way for them to get out of slavery. We talked about how God does not force himself upon us, but he says this is what will be best for you. And that we have free will and we have the choice to say, okay, God, I'm going to, I'm going to follow you and what's best for me. Or... No, God, I don't like what you have to say, and I'm going to do my own thing, okay? God didn't like the fact that they were still in, in, in slavery, but he refused to give up on them. So God, through those laws, makes a way out for those that are still in slavery. And I use the example in there of, of um, in 1 Samuel where uh, Israel, and this is much later in the story, Israel asked God for a king, and God says, I'm your king. And they said, no, we want a, a king like everybody else has. And God said, look, if you want a king, here's the things that are going to happen. He's going to 
take the, your, your eldest sons and he's going to bring them into war and he's going to take the tenth of the best of everything you own. He's going to take your vineyards and your, your fields and, and use them for his own purposes so you won't have them anymore. So God's laying out these things that's going to happen if they get a king and they said, we don't care about all that. We want a king. And God says, okay, fine. You want a king, you can have a king. And then Israel lives under that leadership of, of kingdom until uh, much, much later in the story. Okay, so God in our own lives warns us of the ramifications of our decisions. If, if God is telling us to do something and we say, no, God, I don't want to do that, typically he's going he's to say, okay, that's fine. You don't have to. But here's what's going to happen and how we have to live then in the consequences of our decisions. Okay, so if you weren't here last week, that's a super, super quick summary of about a a 45 minute message so please go back listen to that podcast Uh, there's some good stuff in there that that the Lord has for us and so don't just take just that little nugget if you weren't here last week go listen to the whole thing so you can you can hear what the Lord had to say okay so where I want to start us with today we're not going to read all of that section today um, because it would take 33 minutes for us to do that okay and no one would be with me after about three so if you haven't read ahead, please, when we get done today, when you go home tonight or this afternoon before you take your nap, um, for those of you who do that, um, or whatever you're doing this afternoon, just take a minute, read this section, and let the Lord speak through that, okay? So today I want to start with this first main point. I felt like as we were moving into this that we needed to spend a little bit of time looking at the difference between a contract and a covenant because there is a major difference. In these passages, God is establishing a new covenant with Israel, okay? I want us to take a moment today and make sure that we understand what those differences are between a contract and a covenant. Covenants are not a common part of our language. It's not something that we use on a daily basis. Um, We have a few instances in our lives where we maybe live in a covenant relationship with someone, but for the most part, um, contracts are, are how we think and it's how we operate. Every part of our life is controlled by contracts. You want a new cell phone? You got to sign a contract. You want to buy a house? You got to sign a contract. You want to browse the internet? You have to allow cookies, which is signing a contract. I mean, everything we do involves a contract of some time, of some kind. Okay. So, uh, another one, great one, uh, is a software update. How many times have you checked that little box that say you agree to the terms without actually agreeing to those terms? You don't know what you're signing up for, but you're like, yeah, I agree, and shut up and let me get my software downloaded. Okay. Contracts are super common. Okay. Another example that I thought about this week is marriage. Okay, most marriages are contractual both in, in, in the legal state but also in practice. Now, the state of Louisiana, I'm not going to get into a lot of this, the state of Louisiana recognizes both contract marriages and covenant marriages. Okay, this is not to say if you don't have a covenant marriage, you did it wrong. Okay, everybody hear me say that that's not what I'm saying? Okay, Where, wherever you are is fine. Okay, but there is a difference. Okay, and in when we discover the difference between these two, I think things are going to start to click, okay? I think that a lot of the reason that we have so many divorces today is because we live our relationships in a contract way. But that's not what God's intent is for us, okay? So let's look at this. Most, ca- most, most cases, okay, you think about somebody that you know that's divorced, okay? They are divorcing because they feel like the, the terms of the agreement that they signed up for have not been met right? Whenever you marry someone, you say vows, right? And uh, you vow to uphold certain things. And when one or both parties don't fulfill those vows, it's considered as grounds for termination of that agreement, right? That's how we think. That's how the rest of our world works. And so a lot of times 
we imply those same rules upon marriage and other relationships. By contrast, okay, a covenant is a pledge between two parties that they will uphold their commitment regardless of the actions of the other party. It's vital that we understand the difference between these two because as believers, we are bound in a covenant by acceptance of our salvation with Christ. When we receive Christ as our Savior, we, uh, through that process of saying, Jesus, I give my life to you, we bound ourselves in that covenant with God. One of the commentaries I read this week said this, both covenant and contract have obligations, but with this difference. The conditions set out in a contract require fulfillment of terms. The obligation of a covenant is one of loyalty. A covenant commonly is forever, a contract for a specified period. A ticking off of terms in a checklist fashion can reveal a broken contract, and the point of brokenness can be clearly identified. A covenant, too, can be broken, but the point at which this transpires is less clear because here the focus is not on stipulations, one, two, three, but on the quality of intimacy. Of all the differences between covenant and contract, the place in covenant of personal loyalty is the most striking. The most striking aspect of the covenant that God has made with us, his people, is personal loyalty. And that shouldn't come as a surprise for us. You think about the way in which God has related with us through the death of his son and by the the receiving of the Holy Spirit is a very, very personal thing. We talked about how many times now that that God has given commandments and, and the purpose of those commandments is to teach us how to relate to God but also to relate to one another. The purpose is that we would not only live under a covenant, but that we would be an active participant in that covenant, both with God and, just as importantly, with one another. If you, if you remember, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the, great, uh, the greatest commandment. When Jesus is asked, what does he say? He says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus didn't separate those two things. And we looked at, when we looked at the law, that the first four about our relationship with God and the last six is about our relationship with one another. Have you ever thought about the new covenant in the way that the the covenant is not just between me and God? The covenant is also between us as brothers and sisters in Christ. That we are to live in covenant with one another. God has called us to live in covenant relationships with one another. Some of our relationships we see that way. Our best friends, our close family, we live those relationships out in covenant. If your best friend does something that makes you upset or hurts your feelings, you don't just, done with you, gone forever, right? You work that out. It's very personal. It's very relational. And so there is a bond there that is bigger than that disagreement, that's bigger than that sin. And so you work through those things. But there are other relationships in our lives that we don't treat that way. But the question I have for us today, and I think the Lord has for us, is what would happen in our lives if we treated all of our relationships like covenants and not like contracts? Now, I'm not making that as a blanket statement that everyone that you meet, you need to enter into a covenant relationship. You're not going to sit them down and say, okay, let me explain the difference between a contract and a covenant and how I'm going to relate to you. That would be weird. Don't do that. Okay, but there are people that God has put in your life that you are aware of, that you know about, that the Lord has called you to bless. We've talked about that a lot last year, right? Begin with prayer, listen to them, eat with them, serve them, and share the gospel. There are people in our lives that God has called us to, and we need to treat those relationships not like contracts, but like covenants. God is showing Israel the level of love that he has for them, 
by fulfilling the covenant that he had with Abraham and then creating a new covenant with them at that point. Look with me. Let's flip back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God is living out for us what a covenant is all about. It's about saying, I made a vow to do this thing, and I have not forgotten. I will do it. There's much sin in the life of Abraham's family after God makes this covenant with Abraham. But that didn't keep God from living up to his word. See, that's the difference in a covenant contract. Even though Israel broke their part of the covenant by not being obedient to the things God called them to do, God kept his part. And he always keeps his heart part. He always will. God is showing that he is faithful to fulfill his portion of the covenant even when we don't. He's setting Israel apart. He is setting us apart. He wants us to see that we are living in a covenant with him but also with one another. And one of the ways that we join God in setting people free is by living covenant relationships with one another. About taking those relationships to a new level to where we don't allow little small things. In the cowboy world, we say we don't let a burr under the saddle ruin everything. We don't let something that's small and insignificant sever a relationship that God has put in front of us. Whenever I was in high school, I had a a friend... um, He'll probably never hear this, but I'm not going to say his name anyway. We had this, this buddy. It wasn't Eddie. Nobody, you, your brain might go there as I tell this story, but it wasn't him. There was a guy I had in youth group, and, and we, were, we were really good friends. Um, and I often describe that relationship um, between he and I as um, we were the, the teenagers that most youth pastors fear. Um, we were always, yeah, I hear you giggling. We were always into something, okay? Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, we knew because we had a history of pranking that the, the youth pastor, poor thing, her name was Denise, super sweet lady. I should call and apologize. Um, she, one day, we knew that she was watching us, and we were in a Sunday school room, and back in those days, every Sunday school room had a piano, right, and a chalkboard. It was like, you couldn't, it wasn't a Sunday school room if it wasn't a piano and chalkboard. So we're on the other side of the piano from the door where we know she's watching us, and so I picked up a piece of chalk and pretended it was a cigarette. And she bust open the door and I slammed it down. And she goes, I mean, she tears into us. And we both just start laughing. She said, it's not funny. I said, yeah, it is. And I held up the piece of chalk and, and she realized that the thing was up. So that was the relationship that, that this guy and I had. We were constantly doing stuff like this. We'd play a game, you know, sardines. And it's like hide and go seek in reverse and it's in the dark. But instead of playing the game, we would like set up mannequins in the hallway to freak people out. I mean, like, Tyler would just have that kind of stuff in his trunk. He was just that kind of guy, okay? So that's the dynamic of the relationship that I have with this guy, okay? We spent a lot of time together. Well, he was a year older than I. He graduated before I did. And then I finished my year of high school, and we, we just parted ways. Life happens that way, right? I don't know, it was five or six years later, I ran into him. He was working in a store in town that I went into, um, and we kind of reconnected. We struck up a conversation. Um, and so we, we visited a few times. I ran into him three or four times over the course of a couple of months. And it was obvious now looking back on it that the Lord was in that, right? But after those three or four encounters with Tyler, I realized that, that these six, five years, however many had passed, and he had not grown up at all. And now here I am, a youth pastor all these years later. I'm much more mature than I was in high school, which is the way life is supposed to work, in case you didn't know. All right, and, and so it became very evident that Tyler and I's lives were not going to mesh up. 
And so I did what most knuckleheads do. Um, I started dodging his calls, and I wouldn't respond to his text. And it wasn't very long that it became real apparent to him, apparently, that I was dodging him. And one day I accidentally answered his call. I, I didn't intend to. I meant to, to hit end, and I hit send. That was back in the days when phones actually had buttons. I don't know if you all remember that or not. But I answered the phone, and Tyler lit into me. He cussed me for everything I was worth. And I was very quick to let him know that I did not allow people to talk to me that way. And so I gave it right back to him. I didn't cuss at him, but I chewed his butt and said that I didn't let people talk to me that way. I'd worked my life, this, my whole life, five years, to get to that place, and I wasn't going to allow him to. And that ended our relationship. I never spoke to Tyler again. So what's the application from that? Why am I telling you that story? Looking back, it was evident to me that God had put Tyler back in my life. But I allowed Tyler and his actions to determine my actions. I was living in a contractual. I, in my mind, had a list of things that were acceptable and unacceptable. And he didn't check all those boxes on the acceptable side. And I cut him loose. And I was wrong. That was wrong of me. I made the terms of that relationship contractual, not covenantal. God places people in our lives that need Him. And newsflash, they're not going to look like us. Their lives are not going to match ours. And that doesn't mean that if someone's life doesn't match mine, that I need to just not invest in those people. They're, most people that I know's lives don't match mine. Most people don't have five children, Okay? Most people are not that crazy. Your time's coming. Watch. Prove me wrong. Listen. The way we relate to others reveals to them how God is going to relate to them. The image that I gave Tyler of who God was was cold and demanding and contractual. I did not represent God well. Instead of seeing God for who he was, he saw a hypocritical jerk. And so as we look at these passages today, what we're going to see is, is that what God's doing is he's laying out the framework of how to not be a jerk. Okay? I'm going to say that in some much nicer terms in a minute, but that's pretty much what it's about. Okay? It's about how we live in covenant with one another. How do we relate to one another when things go wrong so that we don't break the covenant so that we are living in a way that reflects the character of who God is okay Bethany and I were talking about this last night and she made a great um, or she had a great idea she said because I was talking about how we're not going to read all these things and part of the reason for that is most of them are agricultural based okay and that's just not how we live but she said you know what's interesting if you added the phrase you might be a redneck to those they kind of make sense I'll give you an example if you get in a fight with someone and in the course of that fight you hit a pregnant woman causing her to go into labor, you might be a redneck. You can find that one in chapter 21, verse 22. I added the redneck part, okay? But, and, and I'm making light of this, but go back and read them. You know, there's others like if your ox um, is known to gore people and he gores someone, you're responsible for it. I don't have any oxes and I'm pretty sure none of you do, Okay? However, all of these things are important. 
okay? These chapters, if we look at them, are intended to be understood more as case laws or precedents of here is, as Israel, you know, they're living under this, under, remember how Moses, after the, the command, or the, the um, uh, Jethro, his father-in-law, he says, hey, look, the way you're doing this is not sustainable. Break this thing out. You don't need to be judging all of these cases. You need to put some, appoint some leaders. Remember, he sets that leadership uh, model up into place. And so Moses is saying, okay, here's the Ten Commandments. Now, here is some case studies in when things like this happen, here's how you are to counsel. Here's how you had to make wise, godly judgments, okay? So, uh, there's also, um, we know that because there are several historical examples of ancient of the ancient Near East people compiling lists of these kinds. And remember, Moses was trained as a prince, right? Part of that princely duty, if he was one day to become Pharaoh, was to understand the legal system and how it works. So he would have been trained in how to write these kinds of documents, okay? And we see him writing this way, as we've already talked about, because that's the culture that he lived in. When, you, when he was writing that way, the people there understood what he meant. Okay, so the question is, what do we learn from these examples? Point number two is that living in a covenant requires that we live in a forward-thinking way. Living in a covenant requires that we live in a forward-thinking way. All of these examples are about protecting people, okay? They are calling Israel to walk with integrity, with mercy, and with God. As I looked at these, my mind went to a verse that most of us are very familiar with. It's Micah 6, 8. And it says, he has told you, O man, what is good. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I love that the way the Message Bible rephrases this. It says it this way, but he's already made it plain how we live. What to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It is quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor be compassionate and loyal in your love, and don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. If we're going to live in covenant with one another, our focus needs to be on at least these three major things. We need to be championing for justice. When we see injustice, we are called as a covenant people to speak up. To not let those things just get brushed under the carpet, but to say something. God has made it clear in these verses that justice is to be a priority in the lives of his people. If you read those chapters, you're going to see over and over and over again that God is saying, if this happens, this is how you respond because God is about justice. Listen, the church should be on the front lines when injustice happens, not taking a back seat. When someone is abused or harmed or taken advantage of, we are called to action. God has given us that priority in our lives. I cannot call myself a good father if I see my children being mistreated and do nothing about it. I cannot call myself a good believer, a good follower of Christ, if I don't stand up for victims like Christ did. It is our call. Some of the things that we're going to see are going to call us to immediate action. If I see two teenagers fighting in the gym, I'm going to break that up. I'm not going to form a committee and discuss about how that should happen and then go do it because the fight will be over. It's done with. Somebody's already hurt. But there are some things in which we need to go to God in prayer and say, God, how do we deal with this? How do we respond appropriately? A great example of that is an accusation of theft. 
If somebody told me that Kobe stole something, I'm not going to immediately go to Kobe and be like, hey, why'd you steal my stuff? Right? I'm going to do a little investigating first, see if that's a valid thing. Sometimes we're to respond in that way, but we are always to respond. The church response in the past has been to hide things that might tarnish our reputation. Whether it be the people of the church or the church itself. But that is not how we see God responding in these chapters. It is not how we see God deal with the issues in the life of Israel. I'm pretty sure when Jesus went into the temple and started flipping tables and driving people out with whips, that he was either concerned with their reputation or what it looked like to people who were not believers. What was he concerned with? The holiness of that place. That's where God was. It was an injustice for them to do that, and he did something about it in the moment. Listen, if we're living with, in, living with integrity, we need not be concerned with our reputation. If we're living with integrity, that will be our reputation. And if that's questioned, we're going to let God defend that, not ourselves. The second thing is that we are to show mercy to all. Mercy is not a, a word that we use very often in our language, so I want to define it for us. Mercy is having compassion for or forgiving someone that you have the power to punish. This, this idea of mercy is very countercultural. It's not something that we do often in, in we'll just say, America. Not many people live in this way. We are way more interested in getting revenge than we are in giving mercy for the most part. The ramifications of choosing to live in mercy are huge. Think about how differently people would view the church if the church lived in justice and mercy. Think about that. Think about how your life would be different if instead of responding when you have every right to, to seek justice, to say, God, how do you want me to handle this? And God says, give mercy. It changes people's lives because for maybe the first time, they experience what it feels like to be forgiven. It's still, to me, when, when I have a conversation with somebody who doesn't understand the grace of God, that God is a God of grace and mercy, and how much it, it blows their minds. Because they're not used to that. They're not used to being forgiven, and that's it. No strings attached. We often will say things like, I'll, I forgive you, but... And then we add something onto the end of it. Well, that's not really forgiveness. That's just you excusing the way you feel. God showing us mercy cost him his son. Mercy is always costly. It's never free. It always costs something. But as a, as a covenant people, we have been given mercy. And God expects us as covenant people to give mercy. When we show mercy, it reveals that characteristic of God. It tells the people in our lives that there is something bigger than what I know. Most people today do not even understand how to receive mercy. If they did, I don't think they'd be so shocked when they discovered that about God. But God has called us to be a merciful people. 
The third thing in this, this sub-point is that we are to be walking with God. As you probably already surmised for yourself, we cannot live in either justice or mercy in our own power. We do not have that within us. The only way we're able to, to give both justice and mercy is through the power of God. If God is not in it, it's not justice. Okay? I want to make that point real clear. If I'm just mad about something and I go on the defense or go on the attack about it, but God's not involved in that, that's not justice. That's my emotions. That's more likely revenge. God is a God of justice, but He must be in that. It is only by walking with God and allowing Him to change our hearts that we could ever begin to live in both justice and mercy. We can't even walk with God without God doing the work in that progress. Right? Scripture says that we don't go to God on our own, but the Holy Spirit draws us to Himself. He wills us to do the work, and He gives us the power to do the work. We can't even walk with Him on our own. What makes us think that we could live under justice and mercy by ourselves? We can't. The advantage that we have as believers is that we know that this is happening in advance, and we can pray to that end. I know that I am weak. I know that there are areas in my life that I struggle with. I know that when I get upset, my response is not mercy. I know that my response is typically anger. But God knows that too, and He reveals that to me. And so before those events happen, I can say, hey God, I need you to fix this in me. But that's the Holy Spirit doing that work. It's not me. It's not me thinking, hey Will, quit being a jerk. That's the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to the marriage analogy for just a minute because if we are going to, to be the people that God's called us to be, we have to stop living for ourselves and living for one another. If you've been to a wedding that Glenn or, or I have done, you know that we talk a lot about covenants. We talk about what it means to give yourself to one another. Okay, So let's go back to that for just a minute. Here's an example of a traditional wedding vow. You would say to the bride and groom, will you have so-and-so to be your husband or wife? Will you love her? or him, comfort and keep him or her, forsaking all others to remain true as long as you both shall live. Have you ever noticed that they're, those are, they're not like conditions listed in with those vows? The vows don't read, will you honor and cherish as long as she always brings you a sandwich? I think the wedding would feel much different if we put stipulations in there. But there are none. We make vows to one another with no stipulation saying that I will do these things forever until we both die. The vows are made without stipulations, but they are made with expectations. There's an expectation when you make a commitment to someone that you're going to fulfill that commitment, right? But with a covenant, even if the other party doesn't, you still can live up to your end. We contrast what we just talked about with culture. Culture says, take care of you. Covenants say, take care of others. One of my favorite examples, of, I don't know if any of you are Parks and Rec friends, but the treat yourself, like that's a great example of our culture, right? We justify the things that we buy, the way we spend our time, by saying, I deserve this. But living in a covenant says, other people deserve this. We grow up thinking that the world revolves around us and then we become adults and the world comes crashing in because we realize it doesn't revolve around me. 
Living in covenant means that we think about the needs of others, not our own. It means we think about the needs of others and not our own. That requires us to live in a different way. And if we're all worried about meeting each other's needs, guess what? All the needs are being met. I've said it before, and it's still true. If I'm focusing on meeting your needs and you're focused on meeting my needs, guess whose needs are getting met? Everybody's. I think we fail to join God because we still live for ourselves. We cannot join God if we're not forward-thinking about the people that God has placed in our lives. And what I mean by that, if you're not, if you're not planning ahead to be interrupted, if you're not planning ahead for events that are significant in other people's lives, you're not thinking about those people. If you're not planning for those people, then you're not living in covenant with them. It doesn't mean we can't ever have a moment to ourselves, but it does mean that we make other people a priority in our lives. I'm talking about being intentional about changing plans as needed and planning ahead so you don't have to change your plans. About leaving some space in there for other people. God is asking us to join Him in setting people free, but we cannot set people free if we can't see their chains. If we don't see what's holding them down, we can't set them free, and we cannot see those chains if we're only looking at ourselves. Last point today. God will not only be faithful to fulfill the covenant, but He will go before us and prepare the way. As part of this covenant that God's made with Abraham, He's promised not only that He would be the father of many, but that God would provide a place for that nation to live. Look at Genesis 15, 18 through 21. It says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt, of the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Kadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, and Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and all the other sites. And then Genesis 26, 3, he says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For, you and your, for to you and your offspring I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore before uh, Abraham your father. And then Genesis 28, 13, he says, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, your God of Abraham, your father, and of God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. He's making that promise to Jacob. Now, the dates between when God makes this promise with, with uh, Abraham and then Isaac and then finally Jacob is uncertain. I, I, I have a timeline, but it's, there's late periods, early periods. I don't really know. My best guess, but from the time God made that final promise to Jacob, until Israel was freed from slavery, was give or take 700 years. 700 years for God to fulfill that promise. I don't know if Israel even remembered at that point that God had made that promise. And I don't want to make a point based on speculation, okay? But when they complained about being in the desert, they weren't asking about when they were going to get to the promised land. They were just complaining about the desert. When they leave Egypt, the text doesn't say that they're told where they're headed. Moses just says to them that God is setting them free. 
And then here they are on the mountain to worship God, and He's creating this new covenant. And God is setting the stage for this new covenant and, he, and he's, that He's making. And He tells Israel that there will be an angel before them to guide and protect them as He leads them to prepare the place. Look at me with Exodus 23, verses 20 through 32. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will drive them out from before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the Euphrates. For I will give you the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. Look, I'm only 36 years old. I've only been a believer for about 23 years. And I'm pretty sure that there are times where I lose sight of what God has promised me. Right? Sometimes we get in the thick of life and things just get crazy. And we forget. We forget that God has spoken. I can only imagine that if they even remembered at all the promise that God had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, that, that if they remembered it, that they probably think about it a lot like we think about the return of Christ. Yes, it's going to happen, but it's someday way in the future. It'll probably never affect me. Right? God is telling Israel that He remembers. He has not forgotten the promise that He made to Abraham. And he says not only has God set them free, but he is bringing them to a place that he has prepared for them. If you went to Russ's class about Exodus, you remember that, that this land is like the land. It is the prime trade routes for that entire region. God's not giving them a piece of land. He's giving them the land. He's giving them the best. It's described as the, the land flowing with milk and honey. God made a vow and he's standing behind it. God is bringing them to this place and he's giving them the best place. Obviously, the people in that area are not going to just walk away and be like, oh, y'all are Israel? Oh, okay, yeah, we'll back out. That's not how that works. God knows that. But God says, don't worry about them. I'm going to take care of that. I got an angel in front of you. He is going to prepare the way. There is, though, a requirement for all of this to take place. Look at verse 21 and 22 again. He says, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, 
then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. In order for this to take place as God has planned it, Israel has to obey what God says. That's how it works. Listen, God is not dependent upon our obedience for anything. I want to make that clear. But He wants it. That's how the relationship is designed to work. When we disobey, we take ourselves down a path that God didn't intend. We're saying, God, this thing that you're saying is the best for me, I don't want that. I want this second-rate thing over here because I think it's better. And God says, okay, fine. You can do that. God is speaking to Israel through an angel to reveal the plans that he has for them, to bring them to the place that he's called them to. And all they have to do is listen and obey. When the angel says stop, you stop. When the angel says go, you go. It's like, you know, Simon says. It's not difficult. The same is true for us today. It's not difficult. God has plans for you and I, and all he is asking for us to do is obey. And we have it even easier than they did because we've got the Holy Spirit living inside of us. God is going to do the work of getting done what He's called us to do. We just have to step out in faith and let God do what He says He's going to do. We talk about, I talk about here from this place about obedience over and over and over. Like I can even spell that word without thinking about it now. That's a new thing for me. Shut up. We talk about it over and over and over again. And the reason is that's the only part of the process we have any control over. You think about the abiding cycle. God speaks and we hear it. And the only thing we can do is choose to obey or not obey. And then the rest of that is God. God does God-exclusive activity. God reveals himself to us and we fall in love with him. And then God speaks again and we start over. The only part, the only role we play is in obedience. It's not that hard. One of my devotions this morning referenced Deuteronomy 30.11. I want to read this to you. This was Blackaby this morning. It says, For this commandment that I command to you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. That's Deuteronomy 30.11. Blackaby said this, The Christian life is not difficult. The same Christ who lived a perfect, obedient, and sinless life stands prepared to live it again through you. God's will is not hard to discern. He has given us the scriptures which reveal his will and he has placed the Holy Spirit within us to guide us to his perfect will in every situation. Our greatest challenge will be to wholly commit our lives to follow God's will obediently as he reveals it. Moses gathered the Israelites around Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim before they were to enter the promised land. There God described what they had to do in order to obey him. God gave detailed instructions so there was no mistaking what he expected of them. Then God asked them to make a choice. If they choose to disobey his commands, they would face his wrath. If they choose to obey, they would receive his blessing. God's word comes to you in the same way. It is not too complex to understand. You don't have to struggle to discern God's will about adultery or forgiveness or honesty. God's word is perfectly clear. The question is, how will you respond? Nowhere in Scripture did God excuse disobedience because His instructions were too vague or complex. Condemnation came because they knew exactly what God wanted them to do, yet they chose not to do it. 
God, through His Holy Spirit, will always give you sufficient revelation and strength to take the next step with Him. If you are uncertain about what God is asking of you, make sure that you are obeying all that you do know, and through your obedience, God's next instruction will become clear. God has a plan for each of our lives. Each of us. He has an intent for what we are to do and to accomplish. He has a good and perfect will for us. And all that is required for that plan to work is for us to say yes. When we don't listen, God will still accomplish what He needs. We may just make ourselves miserable in the process. Israel, we know, chose to not obey God. They went in, they sent the spies into the promised land. They came back and were like, these dudes are huge. And he was like, nope, we're not going. God said, fine, you don't have to go. You're going to wander for 40 years until that entire generation dies off, and then I'm going to send your kids in. I don't want that to be my life. I don't want to make myself miserable because what I think might happen seems like it's not going to be great for me. I want to choose to be faithful and obey what God says and then just see what happens. I know that if all of us look back over our lives, we can see times where we knew that God was telling us to do something and we didn't do it. And then we had to live in the consequences of those decisions. I have those times in my life. I don't want to go back there. This call that God has for us as a church is to join Him to set people free. That is our collective call. The question is, how are you responding? How are you responding to that call? He is preparing things in advance of us. And He is going to be faithful to fulfill the plan and the call that He has for us. But in order for Him to do that work according to His plans, we have to do what He says to do. It is not difficult to figure out God's call for your life. Is it, is it um, take some practice? Yes. Does it require you to focus on Him? Absolutely. Does it take living intentionally? Yes. God has established a covenant relationship with us because He loves us and He wants us to live in that covenant and He wants other people to know the joy that is living in that covenant. He wants us to relate to one another the way we were intended to relate to one another when we lived in the garden. That's the goal. That is our call. And that's how we join God to set people free is by saying, God, I hear you saying this. Yes, I will do it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word today. God, I thank you that even when I mess up, when I don't fulfill the things that you've called me to, that you don't give up on me. And you don't give up on my brothers and sisters. God, I know that it's, it's so difficult to completely rearrange our lives in order to be obedient to you, God. But I ask that you would give us the strength and the courage to do it. God, that you would help us to see that it will be better for us to follow your lead, no matter what the cost is. God, I, we know and we understand that our call from you is to join you to set people free. And we know that we need to say yes. But we also know that saying yes can be difficult. So God, this week I ask that for each of us individually, whatever it is about that yes that we find difficult, that you would just remove that from us, God. 
that you would work in our hearts to prepare us to be where you need us to be so that we can say yes. God, that we would be willing to lay it all out on the line and say, God, I don't know what this is going to look like or how it's going to turn out, but I trust you. 